Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Faces and FinOps podcast powered by ProsperOps. I'm your host, John Meyer. Faces and FinOps podcast is about highlighting thought leaders in the cloud financial management space and insights in how they're making an impact not only in their community, but within their organization. Today's guest is Mike Julian, CEO and co-founder of the Duckbill Group. Did you know, besides his work with clients on their cloud cost management practices, Mike is also the author of O'Reilly's Practical Monitoring, previously wrote the Monitoring Weekly Newsletter, and hosted the Real World DevOps Podcast. Please join me in welcoming Mike to the show. Mike, welcome. John, thanks so much for having me. Mike, you know, of all the podcasts, all the content you and I create separately, we've never got to do one together. <laughs> you know, I was, I was thinking about that, and it's kind of wild that that's never happened. And I get to ask you the question, but I know a lot of the backstory. How about you tell our audience a little bit more about yourself? Uh, yeah. So, hi, I'm Mike. Uh, I am the co-founder and CEO of the Duckbill Group, uh, also the uh, partner and wrangler of Corey Quinn, which most of... That's a full-time uh, job. <laughs> that's a full-time job. Uh, most of you watching will will know that one more than you know me. Uh, essentially, I run the Duckbill Group. Uh so uh, I've we've been around for about four and a half years uh, working exclusively on AWS cost management, uh, and it's been a wild ride. Mike, let's dive a little bit more into your role specifically at the Duckbill Group and what you're doing and how you're helping customers. Uh, so a lot of what we do is, I will say that this entire conversation has to be couched in we work with a slice of the market that is uh, is looking for help. They're looking for help from someone like us. Therefore, we don't work with everyone. Uh, not everyone is looking for consultants to come in and give them advice. So a lot of our companies, a lot of our customers tend to be larger enterprises. Uh, and a lot of what we're doing is we're assessing their uh, architecture to figure out how how can you save money on your cloud costs by optimizing what you've built? Uh, we don't pay a lot of attention to RIs and savings plans and like a lot of the common financial constructs. Like, yes, we could do those things and we understand them. But a lot of our work really comes in at the architectural level. Uh, we believe that your architectural choices are what really drive your cost, not, you know, idle resources and such. In addition to that, we help our clients with AWS contract negotiation. Uh, about half of our work is helping negotiate those contracts. Uh, to date, we're just over $4 billion in contract ne negotiated. So we've been doing quite a bit of those too. Sounds like you've been doing it pretty well. I think contract negotiation is a huge amount of cost savings for customers, right? It absolutely can be. Uh, we've seen some customers get uh, 20, 30, uh, 20, 30, we've seen as high as 40% effective cost savings on a contract. Uh, and that's in it. That's not including the discounts coming from the public pricing, uh, such as like RIs and savings plans. Like we just don't even model that into the contract. A contract can be a very deep savings, but it also comes with very strong commitments, and that scares a lot of companies away. Uh, that said, pick your favorite large company, and I guarantee they have an AWS contract. It definitely makes sense. Mike, before we dive a little bit more into your company, what you're doing for customers and how it relates to FinOps, before the Duckbill Group, what were you doing? Uh, so I ran a observability consulting practice. It was a solo practice. Um, I, I decided to write practical monitoring 
uh, while I was working for Taos Consulting. Uh, and then sure, while I was writing that, I left Taos, decided to go independent while writing the book, which is a terrible idea. Don't do that. <laughs> writing a book and starting a business at the same time was a very stupid idea. Uh, I made it work. I sometimes wish I hadn't like that was it was so hard. So I was running this uh, this small one person consulting firm uh, doing observability consulting. And that, that was it. And then uh, after a while, I, I started to notice like this is just hard. Uh, a lot of what people wanted to hire me for were to implement monitoring systems. They didn't want advice on how it should be done. They didn't want advice on how to improve their monitoring. Uh, they just wanted like come implement Sensei for me. Come implement Zapix. Figure out why Nagios is bad. Like I'm like yeah, those those are easy problems. I don't want to work on those problems. So eventually, I decided that I was going to leave and. Uh, this opportunity with Corey happened to come up at that exact moment. So thus began the DuckBook group. I was looking for a job. <laughs> you were looking for a job and then you just became the CEO? Well, so Corey and I had been uh, trying to figure out something to do together for quite some time, uh, for like a year or so. He was running uh, what was called the Quinn Advisory Group, is AWS Cost Management Consulting. Um, and I was running our this observability consulting. But at the same time, I was uh, working with Corey pretty closely on like, here's how you do sales. Here's how you do marketing. Here's how you write a proposal. Here's how you price your services. Because I have a lot more experience in consulting than Corey did at the time. Uh, but I didn't know anything about AWS at the time. So we were trying to figure out like, hey, we really like to work together, but we don't know how. It's like, he doesn't care about observability. I didn't know anything about AWS. So like we couldn't figure it out. And finally, uh, he calls me one morning. He's like, Mike, I figured it out. I was thinking about you in the shower and uh, and you should come run my company. <laughs> I'm like, well, that's a hell of a time to be thinking about me, but keep talking. <laughs> I always like the origin stories on how some were created and the thought processes. A lot of great it ideas was... don't come from sitting at your desk. They come from like no. you're doing something else. I mean, I, I remember the exact moment that that I get this message. Like, I'm I'm just coming back from the gym. It's like 730 in the morning. And he's like, hey, I just had this great idea. Uh, and I, we spent about a week thinking about it, like really trying to figure out, is this the right thing to do? Uh, and, you know, we did it. Uh, never expected this was how it was going to go. Like, I never expected that I would be running a company like this. It was never really my intention. Uh, but, you know, here we are. Well, let's talk about your company a little bit more. How does it relate to FinOps? And, you know, how are you helping customers with this? Yeah, so um, I will say we, we started we started doing this a little bit early because, I mean, CloudAbility and Cloud Health have been around for quite some time before we started. We started this in 2019. And they had been around since like 2013. But uh, FinOps is this word FinOps is this idea wasn't really a thing when we started it started I started noticing it more around like 2020 but for us we were we were working on cost management and like that's how we thought about it uh, but we started it before FinOps was really like this big thing like I think CloudAbility spun out the FinOps Foundation shortly after we started we're we sort of predate that a little bit uh, but the ideas are all there uh, we're, we do all the things that the FinOps Foundation talks about. We do we do all the things that FinOps is about. Uh, 
but we don't do them ourselves. Like we have a $6,000 a year AWS bill and like, I just don't care about it. I, I never look at it. I don't, I don't care. It's immaterial money. My tagging practices are awful. Like <laughs> the cobbler's children have no shoes. Perfectly <laughs> describes duck bills cost management practices. I have heard that and said that probably three times in the last couple of days. <laughs> it's absolutely true. The reason for that is because we spend all of our effort working on our clients' bills instead. Uh, our clients uh, average about a million dollars a month. So the amount of effort that we can put into them compared to us, like, you know, we don't care about our own costs. Uh, so we, we work with our clients on uh, not really controlling costs, not always lowering costs. It's one of the things that we found is it's not necessarily about making the bill smaller. Often it's about having a better understanding of what's driving the bill. Uh, one of the ways that I describe it to people is uh, the, the CFO is going to hit you with a stick if your bill goes, uh, if your bill is behaving in an erratic way. Like that's the problem. If your bill is 5 million one month, 3 million the next month, 10 million the month after, like that's a problem. And even if the numbers are consistently lower, that's still a problem. What really matters is like, are we spending the money in the places we should be spending the money? And the size of the bill is irrelevant to that point. Uh, and do we understand why we're spending it? Do we understand what's driving those costs and that that is a good thing for us? So a lot of our work is really in helping our clients understand uh, what's driving their cost and how they can have a better understanding of that and better influence their cost. Uh, some clients spend vastly more money after we're done and are happy to do it because they have a better understanding of why they're doing it. But a lot of the work that we do is about at some level reducing cost, which we believe is all about like optimizing architecture decisions. So you're not helping customers implement FinOps in the organization, but you're Sometimes. utilizing the FinOps. Okay, so you're yeah, helping so customers implement FinOps in their culture within their practices? Uh, one of the things that we often do, um, and this is sort of a newer service for us that we, we, we sort of only give to our most, our very large customers. Um, often we are brought in to assess an existing uh, cost management practice. And the concern is from the FinOps team or the uh, some VP or executive who owns the FinOps function. And their question is, I don't care about the bill necessarily. I care about the effort being put on to managing the bill. Are we doing everything that we should be doing? Uh, how are we doing? How are we doing compared to what we see in the market? Uh, and it's like, how, how is the, our practice of FinOps working? So we come in and we assess from that point of, here's all the things that you're currently doing. Here's how they're actually working. Like, let's go talk to your internal customers and see what they think of you. Uh, let's see uh, how well you understand uh, what change, what, how to drive change throughout the organization. Uh, so we, we work a lot with these teams of like, how well of a job are you doing at doing FinOps, regardless of what the size of the bill is? Uh, the thing that we don't do is we're not providing FinOps people to our customers, as in like we're not doing FinOps for them. Uh, we're, we're trying to teach them how to do it themselves. 
I like that approach in, are you seeing your customers, their rank of maturity going from like a crawl, a walk, a run within the FinOps culture or a variation of them? What does it look like from an outside perspective? You know, it really varies. Um, I will say that there, in a very large company, it's, you can never say this company is mature. Uh, what you see instead is there are pockets of maturity. What I see most often is there is a central FinOps function, and then there are engineering teams that are doing their own cost management practices to some degree in conjunction with something the central team is providing. Uh, the central team is often providing like uh, data of some sort, or they're providing journal advice. Um, they may be doing exclusively savings plans and RI management. Um, and then you have other engineering teams that are doing like the rest of it. So they're working in, in conjunction, but one of the end results of that is that you'll see some engineering teams have just ultra high maturity. Like you, you talk to them like, wow, I cannot believe you were this good at this. And then you talk to other teams and they're like, yeah, like we don't care. Like we're just, we're running EC2 at full blast and like go away. Like they, so it's, it's never about a, an organization is mature or not. It's, it's pockets of maturity, uh, which means that it's actually really difficult to level up the entire organization at once because you have to go almost team by team. And that can be a real challenge. Actually, that was a very good explanation of it because I like that you said there are pockets of maturity. I think if there's any company that says they are in a run, right? They're not in a run long or they're a small amount of a run while they're do yeah. implementing variation things of the culture throughout their journey. And that if you're not constantly changing your maturity level from run to crawl to walk, whatever it is, then I think you're not always improving or there's new things not happening and you're not doing it right. So you make a really great point there because when people think about maturity levels, like having a maturity level model to begin with is I think sort of broken because let's say that I'm a small company today and like I have a $6,000 a month bill. Uh, today I have very low maturity. If I had no money, then I would probably have very high maturity on this because I'd be paying a lot of attention to it. So at some point I'm going to improve my maturity of how I manage my bill. Let's say that I then go raise $40 million. And now I'm hiring a whole bunch of new engineers to build this product. What do you think my maturity is going to be? I'm not going to suddenly improve on that. I'm actually going to regress. And that's fine. Like there's no problem with that. But I think it's really misguided to think that as a company grows, their maturity level also grows linearly. Like it's, it's goes up. It should not go up. It changes over time and that's fine. And I think the more important thing is to be aware of when it's changing and why it's changing. And that's okay for it to change. Yeah, absolutely. Mike, let me, Mike, let me switch gears a little bit and ask you some of the questions that you're seeing within your customers. What are some of the biggest mistakes or challenges you might see an immature FinOps team implement? I have two. Uh, so there, there are two of the biggest mistakes that I see consistently, and I've referenced both of these already a little bit. Uh, the first one is 
focusing exclusively on managing reserved instances and savings plans. If that's the scope of the function, then you're barely doing anything at all. That's the easiest part of the job. And some people watching will be like, no, no, it's super hard. Hush, there are, it's, it's not that hard. Uh, focusing on just that is like, RIs and savings plans are the last step. The first step should be focusing on the architecture. Why did you build what you built in the way you built it? Is that the right way to do it? Is that the best way? Is that the most cost-effective way? Which is the second point. Not engaging engineering teams at an architectural level is a massive loss for a FinOps function. You have to have that capability. So immature FinOps practices I often find you're staffed exclusively by financial staff rather than engineering staff. I think that's the wrong approach. This whole problem of managing cloud costs is an engineering problem. It's not a finance problem. It has to be engineering led with support from finance, not the other way around. I think one of the things is that when you're building something within any of your hyperscalers, we'll say AWS, you're, it's being built by engineers. You wouldn't have mm -hmm. a cloud bill if it wasn't for the engineers. I agree with you in the approach. I also agree with you that one of the first steps is architecture, right? Is because if you go ahead and you work towards, you know, RIs and savings plans immediately as your first step, you're going to change your architecture at some time. And if you reevaluate it or refactor it in any way, and you reduce it, you can end up costing more with underutilized instances that you shouldn't have purchased in the first place. So the way that I like to think about that, like you're exactly on point there. Um, buying an RI, buying RIs, buying savings plans, um, committing to certain uh, contractual commitments even, locks in architectural decisions. You, as soon as you make those purchases, as soon as you make those commitments, you've locked in a decision. Uh, what happens when you change that architecture? Are you sure that that was the architectural decision you wanted to commit to? And if you don't understand why that was built the way it was built, then you're just making a commitment over nothing. You don't understand what you just did. Uh, to us, the way that we think about it is understand the architecture first and only after you've optimized the architecture, then start making commitments. Otherwise, you lock in uh, decisions prematurely and find yourself in a real bad situation. Mike, I just asked you about some of the biggest mistakes immature make, but I want to flip that. Do you see even mature FinOps teams make mistakes? And what are they? I do. Man, that is a great question. Uh, the biggest mistake that I see mature FinOps teams make is that they, they can often fall into a a command and control structure, a, a, a sort of a gatekeeping posture with engineering teams. And that's, that's pretty bad. You end up in this situation where uh, engineering wants to do something and now FinOps is sort of a, they have to do a review before engineering can make the decision. Wrong direction. Uh, Finance has never been the gatekeeper to doing some to doing engineering work like it. They intentionally are not for FinOps to do so. Bad idea. Even security should not be a gatekeeper to engineering doing their job. Uh, all of these roles are supporting roles to getting the product shipped. 
So you have to you have to not have a gatekeeping posture, uh, which is really hard to do because a lot of teams believe that a lot of FinOps teams uh, can fall into this mistaken belief that their job is to control the cost. And it's not. Their job is to enable engineering to make better decisions. Let me dig in into that a little bit because I find that what you said is actually, uh, it, it sparked a curiosity. So part of the FinOps culture is like the business-driven decision around implementing a business application or you know doing one. Are you saying, now I'm not saying like the financials should look at that and say, oh, well you, yeah, no, you can't do that. Where engineering says, I need all of these. Is it the team collaboration to look at this new widget that I'm gonna do, this architecture and say, yes, let's do it and implement it. Here's a cost from it. Or are you saying like engineering reviews their architecture and they're aware of their cost because it's driven into their culture, they can implement it and it's still a team driven thing. The latter for sure. Like the, the latter is what you want. Uh, the the former is is tough. Like, don't get into that. Like, no one likes it. <laughs> uh, the the way that I explain it to to our clients is, um, you you can think of at one end of a scale you have uh, you have efficiency, at the other end you have innovation. You get to pick where on this scale you are at any given time, and you can change that decision. And this could be on a per team basis. It could be org wide. It could be whatever you want. But the important thing here is that innovation is inherently wasteful. It has to be. Likewise, the more efficient you are, the less you're innovating. And a lot of FinOps teams believe that their job is to push as hard as possible toward efficiency. And engineering believes their jobs push as hard as possible towards innovation. So, that is obviously going to lead to some tension. Uh, what I advise instead is for any team, for any team whose job is to uh, protect the organization, I guess to say, like believes their job is to protect the organization, uh, finance, security, FinOps, what have you. The job is not prevent some other team from doing a thing. The job is to enable that team to understand what decisions they're making and to take all these other considerations into account at the same time. I once heard someone say that uh, security is a, an aspect of good engineering. Uh, operability is an aspect of good engineering. Cost is also an aspect of good engineering. A, good, a, a great FinOps function provides data to engineering, provides context, provides information, provides assistance, and helps them make better decisions. Uh, Likewise, engineering has to recognize that, hey, maybe we're, we have this, this product we've built and like, it's not nearly as innovative as it needs to be anymore. Like it's, it's much more stable now. Like let's dial that back and intentionally go back more towards the efficiency side. Uh, maybe we do that just for just a quarter. We dial it back two notches and then go forward five notches in three quarters from now. So you get to pick how you how you behave on that front. But I think the important part is that it has to be a collaborative effort. Team effort all around it. Now, Mike, I know that you're helping companies evaluate their FinOps so as an outside consultant. So you're an outside company for it. And I imagine it comes with its own unique challenges, having 
you know, internal and enterprises look at this outside company come in, but what are some of the challenges that you see companies do when they're trying to implement or run their FinOps teams? A lot of the stuff I already talked about is, is some of the common stuff we run into. Uh, but then after that, I, I see a lot of challenges with uh, generally staying on top of the, the pace of changes from AWS. And I will also couch this and say, we only work in AWS. That's only my understanding. So Azure and GCP, Oracle, I, Alibaba, I have no idea what they're doing. <laughs> uh, Neither do I. <laughs> yeah. So, so staying, on, staying on top of the, the pace of changes coming from AWS uh, is always hard. Uh, shout out to last week in AWS. Uh, but I think the, the really hard part there is that we still see teams not adopting things like S3 intelligent tiering. And it's like, well, hang on a minute. That came out like, what, 2020, 2021? Like, it's years old at this point. What the heck? Like, why is no one adopting it? And it's that they don't know. And I think one of the hardest parts is you, you can't shame an engineering team for not knowing. Uh, you, have to, you have to think, like, why, why don't they know? Well, because they have a bajillion other things they're thinking about. So we see some struggles with education, uh, just like here are the options you have. Uh, even down to things like, hey, you have this, this application that by how it's designed could be a great candidate for Lambda, but the team has no experience with Lambda, so they've never considered Lambda. Uh, and the organization doesn't have a lot of other Lambda usage, so no one's willing to be the first one to try it. And it's like, well, that sucks. How do you get through that? And at some point, someone has to say like, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to try it. I'm going to push to make that happen. Well, someone's got to tell them that's okay. Someone's got to tell them it was an option to begin with. So a lot, a lot of the education is just a really big challenge. And this becomes a, a massive challenge when you're working with very large organizations. I can definitely see education, skill sets, uh, understanding all the services that come out and get released daily, weekly, um, you know, during reInvent. Mm -hmm. I know one of the challenges that implementing FinOps is, is that you have to have executive buy-in or to, assuming, and correct me if I'm wrong, when you're brought in, you have that executive buy-in, correct? We do. Yeah, we're often brought in by a C-level or a VP. Uh, so... We're, we're automatically brought in at a very high level because what they're, they're not looking for someone to go do the job because they already have people doing the job. They want someone outside that can uh, be outside of their normal systems, outside of their normal processes, outside of the political uh, machine. So we're brought in at a pretty high level to begin with. Mike, when your company's brought in, is it for a long-term engagement or do you just want to help them evaluate, understand, identify all the changes get them running off their feet and let them be self-sustainable? We tried, we try to err on the side of air. <laughs> let me answer that again. We try to go for shorter engagements over longer term engagements. Uh, simply because, well, on one side, there's the sort of the joking, I'll say half joking answer. Uh, no one, no one wants a consultant to stick around too long. Uh, like they start to become part of the furniture and like just gets weird. Uh, but the, the more serious answer on that is that we like to go for shorter engagements because we don't want to become part of the machinery. 
uh, it's their company. They should be experts in this, or at least if not experts, they should have a very solid understanding of how to do this, this thing. Uh, I mentioned earlier that uh, cost is an aspect of a well-built system. If that's true, then an organization has to also believe that themselves. They have to believe that this is worth knowing. This is worth being good at. Maybe they'll never become experts at it, but that's fine. So the longer we stick around, the more we look like part of their machinery and we, we take that value away from them. So we try to go for shorter engagements where we can impart as much of our knowledge as possible in as short of a time as possible. Typically, we're working with the clients for about um, two to three months, uh, sometimes as long as four. And just as much as we can tell them and teach them in that time to get them to a point where they're much more comfortable with what they're doing. That's, that's what we try to do. Mike, how do you see, and I'm sorry to throw out this buzzword, uh, generative <laughs> AI playing a role within FinOps. Do you see it actually impacting it at all? Not, not really. Not, at least I'll say not yet. Uh, <laughs> What are the Remember, this I, is recorded. We'll come back and yeah. you're like, he said not really. Uh, I will say not yet, but I, I, I will also say one of the things I have found immense value from with uh, ChatGPT is uh, writing Python code to hit the AWS API for me. Because like the pricing API is just stupid. Like it's, it's so complicated. Uh, trying to figure out like, how do I get pricing for certain EBS volumes in certain regions? Like it's kind of tricky because the pricing API is just, so you could go to chat GPT and say, Hey, write me, write me some code that does this thing. And it's like, sure. Happily, here you go. And they're like, wow, you just saved me three days of effort. Uh, so that's cool. And like, I think it's, it's less about uh, what we think of when we're thinking generative AI and more like, how can you, how can you automate some of these tasks? Uh, how can you shortcut some of the problems for me? I think that's really cool. Uh, hopefully we'll see more of that. I agree with you. With generative AI, I use it for a number of things, maybe to summarize it, pull some information. I had it write an AWS CloudFormation template once. Uh, actually, it took me two days using it because it would write and it would stop and be like, <laughs> I'm like, you didn't finish it. And then it'd be like, oh, I'm sorry, here's the complete thing. And then we'll go in. I'm like, no, you still didn't finish it. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I, it was a little sluggish. I think it was around everybody using it. I think what it's going to do is assist and make your job or things more efficient, reporting yeah. information. But it's not going to change the role. I know it has to change in some aspect, like pull in, decide. And it goes along with automation. But I think it's just going to assist in general. I completely agree. Because the core of the problems here... Uh, so we we believe, I will actually call this out here, um, there are a lot of software companies in the cost management space. We like all of them. I mean, we don't hate any of them. <laughs> uh, the To us, the problem of managing cloud cost is not a problem that can be solved purely by software because software can only do what is possible to be automated, what's coming from the API. Uh, and that's necessarily limiting. Uh, you can only go so far with that. Uh, likewise, as, as a human doing, a, doing this job, I don't want to do tedious stuff repeatedly. So I rely on software to do the tedious stuff that it can do. Like we have computers for a reason. 
to us, this whole problem has to be software supported, but human led. Um, it, it requires human judgment. It requires human expertise. And over time, we can codify some of that expertise in software, as many of these vendors are, and that's great. But there come, there's a limit to that. It still requires a human to make a judgment call on uh, what am I looking at and what am I going to do about it? And the answer might be nothing. Like uh, this whole workload sitting here is all my DR site. And like, I'm not going to turn that off, even though it's sitting completely idle. Like there are very good business reasons to do that. That requires a human judgment to make that decision. So I, I think you're right that a lot of the AI, a lot of the automation is really going to come into a supporting role. It's not going to be replacing the job or uh, taking the lead on the job. I think it's always still going to require a human to review it and understand mm -hmm. because the data is not always accurate. Mike, walk us through what a typical day or week or even a month might look like for you with your customers. Maybe pick one or is there a general aspect <laughs> that you typically do and implement? I know each one is different and unique, but yeah. there are some overlapping similarities. There are. Yeah, there are. Um, so I will, let's see. A, a typical week for me working with a client, uh, I might start a week by, uh, say, we're working on a negotiation. Uh, and a lot of what that looks like is uh, I might be working on a financial model to, to understand if we ask for certain discounts at certain levels, what's that going to do to the actual bill? Uh, as in, like, is, that, is this discount worth pushing for? Uh, and what's that going to do as we change the architecture over time? So we get into this concept that uh, ADBS internally calls the service mix. Trying to forecast your usage by service over three to five years is tricky. So we make a lot of guesses about that. So trying to model out at that level of granularity for that length of time is, is hard. So we do a lot of that work. Uh, so we, we spend a lot of time of just doing financial models to understand if we make these asks, how is that going to impact us in the future? If we make these other asks that may not pan out for us today, but might pan out for us in three years from now. Uh, and then uh, maybe later that day, I'll, I'll start working with a client on assessing a certain architectural aspect. Uh, for example, we do a lot of work with uh, Kafka, uh, optimizing Kafka workloads. Uh, it's always funny. You can, you can spot Kafka on the bill a mile away because it's just tons of cross AZ data transfer because that's how Kafka works. Uh, so we spent a lot of, I, I might be spending a lot of time talking to the team that's responsible for uh, the Kafka workload of like, how could we optimize this? It's not going to go away. It's how, built into how Kafka works, but like there are a lot of opportunities for how you can uh, lower that the cross EZ cost, like uh, broker compression or uh, client compression. Uh, we could talk about different compression algorithms. Uh, we could talk about uh, how many brokers you're running. Uh, do you really need it to be uh, running multiple brokers in each AZ? Like, there's a lot of different options there. So we'll be talking through with the team of here's what the options are. Let's work through to see which of these might work for you. Uh, and some of these can be really tricky, like. Uh, client, the client compression issues are really about the client sending the data has to compress it on their side before sending it, which means we have to care about the, what language, what bindings the client's using. So how many clients do they have using Kafka? 
and like which teams are responsible for sending that data to them and like how expansive is that can we make the changes there how quickly are they likely to make the changes so all that goes into these considerations of like we could do that but like the other team is not going to put on the roadmap for like a year so like it's not it's not going to happen and like we have to start talking about those trade-offs and then like Maybe later in the week, I'll be having a conversation with an executive who wants an update on what we're finding. Uh, so I'll, I'll be talking to an executive team of, here's how you're managing your costs today. And like, here's how you're falling short. Here's where you're doing well. Uh, here's some recommendations we have for you. And talking about long-term organizational uh, strategy around how we intend to grow. Uh, some of the conversations can, can get really interesting. Of um, <laughs> we've often been privy to M&A conversations, uh, stuff that can move markets. I have to tell my team on a regular basis, like, uh, we know information that can move markets. Therefore, you can't make decisions on that publicly because, like, that's insider trading. Uh, so we're privy to this information. And that means that we have to take into account, like, hey, we're going to buy a company and they've got $100 million a year of ADBS spend. What's that going to do to our bill? And it's like, ooh, that's an interesting that's interesting discussion. Let's talk about that. So it does have a pretty wide range of stuff that I'm working on on any given week. Well, Mike, what advice would you give those who are starting out in their FinOps journey? You know, I think the I think the biggest thing that I would really have to say is something I mentioned earlier. So I'll mention this as a reminder. Your job is not to control the cost. Your job is to enable the organization to use its money more effectively. Uh, the CFO does not care about the size of the bill. They care about if the money is being spent wisely. That's it. Uh, cheaper is not always better. So just always keep that in mind when you're, when you're, working, with, uh, when you're working with teams, when you're, if you're getting started. I mean, really, if you've been in this for a while, a reminder, the job is not to control the cost, it's to enable the organization to, to use its money more effectively. That goes right along with FinOps is not about saving money, it's about making money. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. All right. Well, Mike, let's have a little bit of fun now as we wrap things up. <laughs> How about I ask you a couple of fun questions? Go for it. All right, Mike, if you didn't have to be here, and when I say didn't have to be here, I have must emphasize this does not include the podcast, by the way, because <laughs> you have to be here. But if you didn't have to be at work today, where would you be? Uh, I'd be in my shop. So uh, so I am, I'm an amateur woodworker, and I'm, I'm taking up machine work and uh, clock making. So I would be in my shop. Ooh. Next time I come out to California, I got to take a look at that. I, you got to give me a tour. You got to show me some of the stuff you worked on. It's a, it's a pretty cool place. I'm, I recently, uh, last week I took vacation and uh, moved my shop from one location to another, basically moved across the city. So it was half an hour away from me, and now it's a seven-minute walk. So hopefully I'm going to get in the shop more often. So it's still in the process of being rebuilt, uh, but it should be ready for you. I, I All right. That's where I would be. I, you can count me in for a tour of your shop. I enjoyed, there was a gentleman from another company who made pens, wooden pens, and they had them in this very nice, intriguing case. And he's like, here, select one. And I thought he was like, 
want to watch. You know, like <laughs> this is a <laughs> type. That was pretty good. All right. So my next question for you, Mike, is what was the last book you read? Why? And what stuck with you about it? Ooh. Uh, trying to think the name. The Dragon's Banker. It's a fiction book. Uh, I The recommendation came from Patrick McKenzie, Patio11 on Twitter. Absolutely recommend to follow. Uh, the Dragon's Banker is a, a fiction book, sword and sorcery, except without the swords or the sorcery. Uh, like, it's fantasy set in, like, sort of Middle Ages sort of thing, except there's no violence at all. Like, there, no one pulls a sword out and stabs someone, which is awesome. Uh, but the entire premise of it is there is a dragon who has been collecting a, a wealth over millennia and is currently sitting on this literal dragon's hoard of money. And the queen has just said that she's implementing fiat currency and the dragon is upset and wants to know why his money is now worth now going to be worth less than it was yesterday and wants the help of a banker to invest his money. It's the most ridiculous premise, and it is such a good book. <laughs> I'm, I'm envisioning the dragon sitting on this money and then going to, all right, uh, I'm going to have to put a link in this description below. It, it, sounds, uh, it, it sounds like something that you wouldn't normally pick up and read unless it was recommended by someone. <laughs> and then all of a sudden you're, you're like addicted to this yes, book. Yes, I'm absolutely addicted to this book. It is such a good book. Like it is essentially... A dragon laundering its money. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's definitely a good title for it. Mike, as we wrap things up, who are some of the most influential practitioners in FinOps today? Well, John, you know I'm going to say you, just to pander. <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm touched, you, man, even though I you, don't you consider know, it. <laughs> you know, one, one, of the, one of the things that I... I will give a shout out to all the people who were not public. Uh, we work with some of some of the most amazing people at our clients who are just incredibly good at what they do. And they're not public for various reasons. Uh, many of them work in organizations where they are allowed to be public, but they're doing amazing work. So I know a lot of them follow this channel. A lot of them will probably see this video. So I will actually say shout out to all the people doing amazing work who aren't public. All right. Kudos, Mike. I think they're going to like that and hear it and probably think of themselves. That's the first time we've heard that shout out and I really appreciate it. Well, everybody, it's time to wrap up the Faces in FinOps podcast with today's guest, Mike Julian, CEO and co-founder of the Duckbill Group. Mike, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. Everybody, this has been another awesome Faces in FinOps podcast powered by our good friends at ProsperOps. Don't forget to hit that like, subscribe and notify because guess what? We're out of here.